All right, how are you, beloved? Awesome, excellent. We are, believe it or not, in Romans chapter 9. Hey! Yeah, I know, it's incredible. Do you know we started, I think, in 2013 in Romans, and we are now at chapter 9. We're making our way through. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, grab one of those blue ones located underneath the seats around you. You can flip that open to page 945. 945, that'll bring you to the text we are in this morning. And uh, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 5. Let me give a little bit of review, though, before we start. As I said before, um, and, uh, so, and I've said this concerning the book of Romans when we introduced it, but I think it would be just a good idea to bring it up at this point as well, because we're stepping into a new section of Romans. There is a theme. There is a theme that runs throughout all of the chapters of Romans, and it is the theme of, of righteousness, of righteousness. Let me explain that. According to the first part of Romans, and that would be chapters 1 through 3, 3 and a half, chapters 3 and a half, all of humanity, both Jew and Gentile, everyone, inherently lacks the righteousness they need in order to be found acceptable to their holy and righteous creator, God. Beloved, not only do we inherently lack it, okay, as sinners, we lack it, but we cannot obtain it through any effort of our own. Is that right? That is right. If you went through Romans, you know that to be true, and yet, tragically, that is exactly what the false religions of this world teach. They teach that we actually can earn or merit God's acceptance through law-keeping or good works or through some other means. Is that true, beloved? That's not true. But look at all the other religions of the world, all of them, outside of true Christianity, and that is exactly what you will find in one way or another. They give you a system to earn or merit the acceptance of God. It's impossible. It's impossible. Because we lack the very righteousness we need to be acceptable to God. Now, I have frequently referred to this section, chapters 1 through 3, as condemnation. Do you remember that? Condemnation, because it makes it very clear that there is no salvation but only condemnation for every sinner who remains outside of Christ. You got that? That's kind of the bad news of Romans. That's the bad part of the gospel. It's what makes the good news of the gospel so wonderful, so good, is the bad news that begins in the book of Romans. So we lack righteousness. Then in the next part of Romans... Chapters 3 and a half, specifically 321, through the end of chapter 5. So that's the next section. Remember, there's this theme of righteousness. I'm explaining that to you now. Paul describes how sinners become acceptable to God and forever escape his deserved condemnation. Isn't that wonderful? 
And that is through the gracious and saving act of God called, yes, this side of the room has been paying attention, or this side is just sleepy, I'm not sure. (laughs) Justification, beloved. Wonderful word. Wonderful, wonderful word. The sinner, by God's grace alone, through faith in Christ and his saving work on their behalf, is fully forgiven of all of their sin. That's that's amazing. And imputed, big word or word we don't use very often, or credited with the righteousness, here it is again, that they so desperately need, that is the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, the one we've been worshiping this morning. So the sinner, listen, the sinner who has no righteousness on their own, who is inherently unrighteous, the sinner who repents and puts their faith and trust and hope in the good news of the gospel, that is the person and sacrifice of Jesus, is instantly, instantly given a new and glorious status before God. They no longer stand condemned, but they are justified. They are at that moment of their salvation, at that very moment, they become beloved. By God's gracious act, through Christ, they become just before God. Is that amazing? The sinner becomes just before God. They are made eternally right with God. This is not a temporary thing, beloved. It's an eternal rightness. And it's, again, not because of something they have done, but because of their saving faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done. What he has done. That's why we worship him, beloved. He's worthy. He is worthy. In the next section of Romans, that's... Chapter 6 through 8, we we learn about something else. It's the subject of, do you remember that word we brought up so many times? Sanctification. Someone is looking for some stars this morning right over here. I am telling you. He is on it. He is bailing you guys out. Which is a progressive work of God. Again, review. A progressive work of God and man, right? It's cooperative. That over time makes the justified believer... That's what we are as Christians. We are justified believers. Beautiful. It makes the justified believer, the Christian, more and more free from sin huh? and like Christ in their actual lives. So then every true Christian will, to one degree or another, according to the word of God, by the power, not their own power, but by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, they will manifest or display the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of Christ in their lives. You see how this theme of righteousness keeps running through the book of Romans? That's what I'm trying to show you anyway, okay? And the Bible's very clear about this, beloved. I know some people aren't, but the Bible's very clear. All those who have been justified will also be sanctified. Huh? 
I could preach that over and over and over again because I feel like I need to, especially in our day and culture where we have people professing to be Christians, but there's no evidence of any sanctification. Beloved, if there's no evidence of any sanctification, there was never justification. It's two sides of the same coin, justification, sanctification, that coin being the coin of salvation. Are you with me? Good. Then in the last part of Romans, chapters 12 through 15, Paul addresses several important ways in which the Christian can and should exercise and practice righteousness. (laughs) Righteousness, okay? But I left out the section we have now arrived at. I left that out. That is Romans 9 through 11. Do these chapters... Do these chapters also have something to do with the theme of righteousness? They do. I believe they do. In the fact, listen, in the fact that in them, Paul provides a solid defense, listen, a solid defense of God's righteousness. Of God's righteousness. What do I mean by that? I mean that in these three chapters, and remember, they're a unit. They go together. So we don't want to pull one apart from the other. We need all three to really get this message. Just remember that. I'm going to say that more than once as we move through them. It's 9, 10, and 11. They go together. Paul carefully explains in these three chapters that God has been and will be righteous in all of his dealings with his chosen nation. That is the nation of Israel, of Israel. How many of you just sometimes wonder about that nation? Maybe you don't know a lot about it, or you're not sure what's going on with the nation of Israel, or what it even means in the, in the context of God's plans and such. You ever wondered those things? Okay, one person was being honest. Excellent. I'm sure a lot of you have maybe wondered about that, or maybe you know you've been exposed to those things. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna learn about it. We're going to learn a lot about it as we move through these next three chapters. So listen, what that means, and by the way, remember I've told you before that a lot of people, for some reason, especially Christians, avoid the Old Testament like a plague, and they spend all their time in the New Testament. That's a huge mistake. Uh, if you read the Old Testament, you know what you're going to come into contact with? over and over and over again, besides God <laughs> and his character, and it's so important, those things are so important, you're going to come into contact with this nation called Israel. Israel. There's no small thing, beloved. No small thing. So listen, what that means, when I say that God has been righteous in all of his dealings with his chosen nation, the nation of Israel, and that's what Paul is, is, is striving to show us in these three chapters. What that means in part is that he has never gone back, nor will he, on the special promises he made to them. But why, why would someone even think that, or might think that he has, or that he will? In other words, why does Paul have to defend God's righteousness in, that, in this manner, or this matter? Well, listen, because, listen, you're going to learn some stuff today, I hope. I hope. Listen. Less preachy today, more teachy, okay? More teachy. We'll get into the preachy. More teachy today. So put your teachy heads on. 
God's promises to the nation of Israel, listen, God's promises to that nation were connected inseparably by God to the Messiah. To the Messiah. Any of you know who the Messiah is? Yeah, Jesus Christ and their acceptance of him. God's promises to the nation of Israel were connected inseparably to the Messiah and their acceptance of him. But sadly, but sadly, the phone is ringing in the midst of this very teachable moment. The nation of Israel, here's the bad news, the nation of Israel rejected. They rejected their Messiah. Do we know this historically? Yes, we know this. By the way, 2,000 years later, to this day, the nation of Israel still rejects their Messiah. They're still waiting. So the question then is, in light of their unbelief and rejection, in light of that, then how can all of God's promises to them possibly be fulfilled? Do you understand the logic? If the promises are connected inseparably to the Messiah and their acceptance of him and they have rejected him, then how are God's promises going to be fulfilled? In fact, because of their unbelief, it might appear that God's purposes have been frustrated or that his word has failed. Or that maybe God has rejected his people or cast them aside. But listen to me. If any of that is true, if any of that is true, then God's righteousness cannot ultimately be upheld. And beloved, that is something that is absolutely relevant to all of us. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, okay, he's going to talk about Israel. I'm not Israel. No, you're not. You're not. We'll talk about that in a second. You're not. I'm not. Uh, So what do I care? You should care. It's a very important matter. Listen, if it is true that God can't, can't, he's unable, or won't, he chooses not to, fulfill his promises to Israel, if that is true, then how in the world can you and I be certain that he will fulfill His promises to us, the church. Huh? Right. So, for instance, then, and we just talk about this in chapter 8, how can we be confident that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? How can we really be confident? Or that we who are justified will ultimately be glorified just as God promised in chapter 8. If God's promises can't ult- or can ultimately go unfulfilled, we can't be certain, beloved. You see how important this is? Israel is no small deal. Israel is not just a side note. It's very, very important. And so we're going to look at that. By the way, some have, and this is what I was mentioning earlier, some have, and when I say some, Christians, 
have tried to resolve this problem of Israel's unbelief by suggesting that the church has replaced Israel in God's plan. They have replaced Israel in God's plan. This is referred to as replacement theology. Replacement theology. And if you've never heard it, great. But if you have or you do, I want you to know it's not accurate. And so they would say the promises made to Israel have been transferred to us in some way, making the church the new Israel. Making the church the new Israel. Beloved, that is it's just absolutely not the case. I'm going to show you that. I'm, I'm just saying that to you now, but trust me, I'll show you that that is not the case. God has always had a glorious plan for the nation of Israel, and he has not gone back on it. Nor has their unbelief frustrated his plan. It has not. And hopefully that will become very clear to you as we make our way through these next three chapters. So let's begin to look at this issue now by reading the first five verses of chapter 9. And in the first five verses, really kind of just the introduction into this section, we're going to get into some really heavy stuff starting next week. We're going to talk about election, all of these things. But I want to make sure that those things are understood in their proper context. Paul is talking here about Israel, first and foremost. So beginning in verse 1, Paul says this, look in your Bibles, chapter 9. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Inside of your bulletins, you'll find uh, an outline. And so what we're going to do this morning is simply ask and answer two questions so that we might understand the significance of Romans chapters 9 through 11. Okay, very simple, very introductory to the matter we'll be looking at as we move through these chapters. So the first question we're going to ask and answer is, what was the cause of Paul's great sorrow? And second, what is true of those Paul had this great sorrow for? You with me? Okay. What was the cause of Paul's great sorrow? Or to put it another way, that's the first question. What were the circumstances, the historical circumstances, that gave rise to this great sadness and continual grief in Paul's heart? What were they? Well, before we consider that, let's look back at the first verse, okay? Look back again, verse 1. I am speaking, Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. All right. Paul wants his readers to know that this sorrow of his, that he's going to express, this sorrow of his is absolutely sincere. That there is nothing untrue or fake about his grief. 
So to demonstrate that, he says that he speaks as one who is in Christ, or that is to say, united to Christ. Or you might understand it this way, or in the presence of and accountable to the one whose very nature is truth, is truth. Not only that, but Paul's conscience, aided by the indwelling Holy Spirit, gave assurance to Paul that he was entirely genuine or truthful in what he said. Or to put it another way, what he said was said in good conscience. In good conscience. It was true. It was sincere. And he wants to make that clear. But why does Paul place such emphasis? You know, it's like um, when you approach your children, you know, you approach your kids, you're like, all right, tell me the truth. And they start to tell you, and then they're like, I'm not lying. I'm not lying. I'm telling you the truth. And so we might think, oh, they're definitely lying. <laughs> that's, that's not the case here, okay? But why, why, would he, why, would he, why would he emphasize this? Why would he emphasize that he's being sincere? Well, because I think many of the Jews that would have, have heard what he was going to say when they read his letter or they heard the reading of his letter or they heard this sorrow, many of the unbelieving Jews would no doubt have questioned Paul's sincerity. They would have questioned it. You go, why? Thank you for asking that question. Let's talk about that for a moment. First of all, the sorrow of Paul's is due to the fact that while some individual Jews believe that is true, in fact, early on, Pentecost, there was a great number of Jews uh, that believed. But the nation as a whole, Israel, the Jewish people, Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh, that's what he's talking about, as he says in verse 3, the nation, the majority, had rejected Christ and refused to believe the gospel or the good news concerning Jesus Christ. Therefore, listen, Paul knew his people. Remember, Paul was a Jew. His people were destined for God's wrath. For God's wrath. So Paul's heart then was truly broken for Israel. Do you understand that? You have people in your own family? That are unbelievers? Do you have sorrow? Yes. Great sorrow and grief in your heart? That's the other thing, you know, some people mention this. I think it's worth mentioning. I didn't have it in my notes, but I just thought of it. Paul just came off of a big high, you know, Romans chapter 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Woohoo! I mean, that's a big high five jumping up and down. And then he steps right into Romans chapter 9. He talks about this, this anguish, this grief. It's, that's the reality of the Christian life, beloved. We have joy, inexpressible joy in the gospel. At the same time, we can have incredible grief in our hearts, especially for those that are dear to us, that we love, who have rejected Jesus Christ. Paul shares this concern of his heart again in chapter 10. When we get to chapter 10, he'll say this. Brothers, my heart's desire 
and prayer to God for them is that they might or that they may be saved. The them, you can look at this, is clearly Israel. You see that in chapter 9, verse 31, the verses that come right before chapter 10, verse 1. He's talking about Israel. He's talking about his people, the nation. Now listen, not only had Israel rejected Christ and Christianity, because I'm still explaining to you why Jews might have doubted Paul's sincerity, unbelieving Jews. Not only had they rejected Christ and Christianity, but they were strongly opposed to Christianity. Do you understand the distinction? So and it isn't just a matter of Jews said, yeah, we're not going to do the Christian thing. It wasn't just that. They were against the Christian thing. Before Paul's conversion, before he became a Christian, okay, before that, he made it his business to hunt down Christians and imprison them. Did you know that? Because their beliefs and teachings were seen as a very real threat to Judaism and to the nation of Israel. There's people claiming that the Messiah has come. And as far as they were concerned, that's not the Messiah. They were leading Jews away from Judaism. So Christianity was seen as a threat to the nation. You understand? And Paul made it his business to deal with that threat. Speaking of that time in Paul's life, Paul actually says this about it in Acts chapter 22, verses 4 through 5. He says this, I persecuted this way. That's interesting. The way, it's only used in Acts several times. I don't remember how many exactly, four or five, I think. That term is only used in Acts, but it's, it's used to refer to Christianity, the way. Interesting. Jesus said, I am the, the way, the truth, and the life. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. In other words, the authority of Israel can testify to my actions concerning this matter. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus, like letters of permission to do his business, to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds, chains, to Jerusalem to be punished That is what Paul did. And he was zealous about it. But as the Bible tells us, Paul, formerly known as Saul, who was on his way to persecute Christians, had an incredible encounter with the risen and glorified Lord on the road to Damascus. And consequently, he became a Christian. And you can read about that if you want to read the details of that, because it's incredible, there in Acts chapter 9. In fact, I'm just going to tell you, I would encourage you as we're moving through the book of Romans, just read through the book of Acts as well. Read through it. It would be very helpful for your understanding of these things. So as a result of Paul's conversion and God's call upon his life, listen, the persecutor of Christianity became the greatest defender and proponent of it the world has ever known. See how God just flips things the right side up? He flips them right side up. Remember how you were talking to us last week about sin turns them upside down, messes things up, distorts things. God 
puts them right again. So in the eyes, listen, in the eyes of the unbelieving nation of Israel, Paul was nothing more to them at this point than a traitor. He was a traitor. He had betrayed his nation. He had turned his back on Judaism and his people. I can illustrate this for you just I'll give you this illustration. I was doing door-to-door evangelism. I was knocking on doors and asking people what they thought of Jesus Christ and then trying to share the gospel with them. I've never had this happen before, never had it happen since I ran across a Jew, a Jewish man. And he, wasn't, uh, he was a religious Jew, so he wasn't secular. In other words, he still practiced his religion, Judaism. I started to try to engage him, have a conversation with him. You know what he told me? When I, you know, so again, I'm going to open up the book of Romans, right, with him? The book of Romans, because that's where we really find the gospel. I'm like, I'm going to give him Romans. Uh, who wrote Romans? Paul. So what he said to me was, don't you quote anything to me that was written by Paul. Uh. <laughs> and he told me why. Paul was a traitor. Paul was a deceiver. As far as they're concerned, Paul was wicked because he turned on Judaism. That's how they see it. So I'm thinking, well, Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Wow. Anyway, our conversation didn't go very much farther than that because we just... But do you understand what I'm saying? This is modern-day time. It's been that way. It's still that way. So in light of those events, the unbelieving Jew may have questioned, I'm going to say he did question Paul's true heart sorrow or heartfelt sorrow for them. Yeah, right. The traitor doesn't care about us. You see? You see how why Paul has to start out the way he does? But, but beloved, it was real. It was genuine. It was an authentic love. And listen, it was so strong, so intense. That Paul, in verse 3, essentially says that if it were possible, he would be willing to surrender his salvation and be damned to hell if it would somehow mean salvation for the unbelieving people of Israel, for his kinsmen according to the flesh. Hello? I don't... Listen, it's one thing to be willing to die for someone that they might, they might live, okay? But it is something greater, altogether greater, to be willing to go to hell in their place. Do you hear me? Not that such a thing is possible. It's not. You can't step in and, and rescue someone by taking their place in hell. That's not possible. Only Christ can rescue the sinner. But Paul's language here, as some commentators have pointed out, is the language of love, not the language of logic. It's the language of love. Let me illustrate that. It's like if I said to my wife, sweetie, I would die a thousand deaths that you might live. Now, is that possible? No, because I'm going to die once, okay? 
And maybe not if the rapture comes, but I'm going to die once. So it's not logic, it's not possible, but it expresses my, my deep love for her, that if it was possible, I would I'd die a thousand times over that she might live. That's, that's how Paul's speaking here. So to recap, what is the cause of Paul's great sorrow? What is it? It is Israel's unbelief or the Jewish rejection of the gospel. Are you with me? Good. Because these things are important as we move through the rest of this chapter and into 10 and 11. Now, that brings me to the second question in the outline. What is true of those Paul had this great sorrow for? What is true of them? And by answering this question, we'll shine some more light on the problem that Paul deals with in these three chapters. So let's look at that together. Now listen, the ones who have refused, let me just say this, the ones who have refused to believe and Paul's heart is broken over are not just any group of people. They are a very unique people with privileges that cannot be overlooked, that have not been revoked. Did you hear me? Have not been revoked and seem entirely incompatible with their current fate, which is hell, which is hell if they remain in their unbelief. Look back at the text with me. After Paul expresses this great sorrow, he gives us specifics about these people for whom grief resides in his heart, great grief. Verse 4, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So what we're going to do is just briefly go through these, but Paul starts off this way by saying, they are Israelites. They are Israelites. Beloved, that is no small thing. That's not, that's not like some insignificant title. It refers to a person who belongs to Israel, Israel, or more importantly, a people that were chosen by and belong to God. Huh? Very significant. Paul says in Romans chapter 11, actually beginning in right before that chapter 10, verse 21, he says, but of Israel, he says, he's talking about the Lord now, the Lord says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Then in verse 1, Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite. We'll get to that. But I just want to show you, these are God's people, Israel, okay? Paul goes on in verse 4, and to them, and to them, who? Israel, Israelites, to them belong the adoption. Now, what does that mean? Many Bible teachers see this simply as a historical reference to the fact that God has referred to the nation of Israel as his son, as his son. You can see that in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. There it says, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. 
Wow. Okay, that's, that's quite a privilege, right? For God spoke of no other nation in that way, beloved, just in case you were wondering. He didn't speak of any other nation in that way. But I think there's something more to what Paul says here than that. I think there's more. The word translated adoption here in chapter 9 is the same Greek word that Paul used, and maybe you'll remember this, in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 23. He also uses it in Galatians chapter 4, verse 5, and again in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. And in all of those cases, the word is used by Paul to speak of salvation, of salvation. Additionally, Paul speaks of adoption as not having belonged, like something in the past, but rather belonging to the nation. It belongs to the nation as if it was a privilege they still possessed. Okay, you with me so far? So this then only adds to the apparent dilemma that Paul must address. In other words, listen, how can it be said that adoption belongs to the Israelites when the nation as a whole remains hardened in their unbelief, when they have rejected their Savior? How can that be said then? That's a good question. We know that all who remain in unbelief are condemned, right? So what about this benefit of adoption that belongs to Israel? Well, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that, not today. But we're going to get to it because Paul gets to that. He will explain this. But let me show you something just for fun in Romans chapter 11 because it will take us a while to get there. But in verse 25, listen, I'm going to... Maybe if you've never read this before, it'll just kind of blow your minds a little bit. If you've read it before, maybe it still blows your minds. But listen, verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight. He's talking to Gentiles now. Roman church was made up of Jews and Gentiles, predominantly Gentiles. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Hey, I'm not done reading yet, but uh, we're Gentiles, just so you know. We're saved Gentile. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, until every last Gentile that God has elected comes in through faith in Christ. Okay, this is, I can't wait to get, all right. And this, and listen, verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, future tense, as it is written, the deliverer, that's the Messiah, that's Christ, beloved. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. That's a reference to Israel. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. I'm just not going to, I can't say anything because it'll make me say other things. So I just wanted to show you that. But we're going to get into it. All right, let's go back. And to them belong the adoption. What else belongs to them? The glory. 
the glory. Next, Paul says the glory belongs to them, right? The glory, now listen, it may simply be a historical reference to the manifestation of God's presence with the Israelites as recorded in the Old Testament. And so you can see that in many places. But for instance, if you're one of those who take notes and look these things up, Exodus 16.10 or chapter 40, verse 34, or 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. Or you could say it this way, it's a reference to the splendor of His, God's divine presence, which was in the temple, or, on, or it showed up on other significant occasions in the nation's history, okay? Historical reference. But I think it goes further than that. I think it goes further than that, this glory. I think it also refers to the future glory for the people of God in the age to come, which is exactly what Paul had been talking about in Romans chapter 8, which was right before chapter 9, okay, just for context, okay? So as you can see, why is he saying that? There's a connection, that's what I'm saying, okay? Glory belongs to the nation of Israel. But how do I make sense of that in light of there's no glory in the nation of Israel now? They're in their unbelief. They've rejected the glorious one. The covenants. All right? Adoption, glory, the covenants. God made specific covenants with the nation of Israel. And in these covenants, God promised that certain things would occur. And due to Israel's unbelief, not all of those things have yet happened. But does that mean they won't? Based on Israel's unbelief, should we conclude that God's purposes have been frustrated? He couldn't accomplish what he wanted to accomplish? Huh? Because if that's, if that's what we have to say, then we, beloved... We're in trouble. What if he can't accomplish this? His purpose is for us. I've been, I've been hammering away that those who he saves, he will bring them to the end. Those who he justifies will be glorified. Why? Because I'll make sure of it. <laughs> right? No way, man. Because God makes sure of it. So I better be sure that all of his purposes will come to pass. You see what I'm saying? That's why the nation of Israel, that's why this is such a dilemma. If you don't understand what Paul or what God is doing in history with this nation. And that's what Paul explains in these three chapters. You get it? Oh, how about this? The giving of the law. The giving of the law. He's just one after another. To Israel, God gave his law. And in chapter 7 of Romans, Paul calls God's law, do you remember? Holy and righteous and good. Beloved, that was a privilege beyond privileges. No other nation was given the law of God. It was to Israel that the law of God was given. How about the worship? The worship was given to them. What is that? It's most likely a reference to their sacrificial system, to their sacrificial system that God gave to the nation of Israel to observe. By the way, it was a system that pointed to their need for a Savior. <laughs> and God sent the Savior and they rejected Him. 
and the promises. The giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. God made promises to the nation of Israel, not the least of which was all of the promises associated with the Messiah. Listen, not only his coming, it's not just that, but also his reign in his kingdom on the earth and the many blessings that would flow forth from that glorious reign. All of those promises, all tied to the Messiah for the nation of Israel. To them belong the patriarchs. I'm just reading from uh, the text. What is this privilege? Well, it's no doubt a reference to patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the founding fathers. Okay, I say that because they're all mentioned in the following verses, 6 through 13. So I think this is what Paul has in mind when he says patriarchs, and they are very important figures in Israel's history because why? And again, you could read Genesis all the way through and understand this very well, these patriarchs, how significant they are. But they were very important figures in Israel's history because God loved them, okay? An undying love he had for them and gave promises to them that extended to their descendants. Who's that? The Jewish people. Beloved, without a doubt, all of these privileges together, together, clearly point to this, the surety of Israel's salvation. That's the point. But how can that be in light of the persistent unbelief? Huh? Well, answer me, because I want to know before I have to go through the text next week. No, I'm kidding, guys. I'll answer that for you, but that's the question. That's the question. That is the problem. Do you understand the problem? Thank you. Finally, Paul says, Romans chapter 9, verse 5. By the way, it's a problem with a solution, okay? It's not an unsolvable problem. It's a problem that Paul will solve. And we're going to be glad that he does because we're going to learn a lot of great things along the way. He says, finally, and from their race. Whose race? Uh Uh-huh. According to the flesh, your physical descendants is the Christ. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. That's just a great passage, period, in so many ways, but it exalts Christ. Not only is Christ a Jew, but he's God. He's God over all. To Israel belongs the greatest privilege of all. Through them, through their lineage, the Savior of the world came, Jesus the Christ, who is God over all. And yet, the majority of the Jews had and have rejected Christ. So what are we to make of that? I mean, how could that be? Does that, listen, does that mean that the word of God has failed? Well, look at verse 6. Look at the beginning. Look at your Bibles. Look at verse 6. What does Paul say? What does he say? 
Right. Look, he said, listen, that's, so he just said all that. He gave you the problem. They're unbelieving. My heart is broken. But to these people belong these incredible privileges. What do we make of this? You're wondering, it's not as though the word of God has failed. And I'm going to explain to you why. And that is what is laid before us in the remainder of this unit, chapters 9 through 11. Are you excited about it? Yeah. You could say this about that statement, that this half was excited. I don't, what's going on over here, I'm not sure. You could say this. It's not as though the word of God has failed. It's not as though their condition or state of unbelief or that their condition or state of unbelief does not mean that the word of God has failed. That's what he's saying. It does, so we've understood their condition, but even in light of all that, it, it does not mean that God's word has failed. But that is what appears to have happened, beloved. That's what they possibly could have been thinking. It was wrong, but he has to address that. Hey, let me give you something else, and that's important for us. We want to know that God's word does not fail, right? We want to know that his purposes are sure, that he fulfills everything he has set his heart and will to, right? Okay? But for Jewish unbelievers, there's just something else, too, that God, Paul certainly would have been concerned about. For a Jewish unbeliever, he could have looked at this and said, listen, I know God's word doesn't fail. That's impossible. I mean, they have a history of God upholding his promises and covenants, and he has not let them down. He's been faithful to them all along the way. So get this. Here's the Jewish unbeliever who has rejected Christ, and he hears Paul's gospel, but he looks, and the nation has absolutely refused it, refused this Messiah. So the Jewish unbeliever, the only conclusion they could come to, if they're going to hold to the fact that God does not fail, that his covenants remain true and stand and will never be compromised, the only conclusion that he could draw is that, I guess, Jesus wasn't the Messiah. That would be the conclusion that he would have to draw. Because if he was the Messiah, then our nation would have received him. Huh? Our nation would have received him, but rejected him. So we wait. But he was the Messiah. He was the Messiah. Paul knows he's the Messiah. Paul's been preaching that. He's been explaining that. He's gone to the synagogues over and over and over again, showing them from the Old Testament scriptures to read through Acts, you see that, that this Jesus is the one we were waiting for. He's the promised one. Receive him. And again and again, they rejected him, threw him out of the cities, even plotted to kill him. This is so important. We need to understand how is it then, in light of all those great and wonderful privileges of this nation, in light of all the promises that you have made to them, God, what are you doing? They have rejected you. They have rejected their Messiah. They have rejected God who is overall blessed forever. So what do I make of that, Lord? And that's what we're going to look at. Here's, I'll give you this one quote. And really, it's, it's no small issue because what's at stake is the very integrity of God. This is one writer, he says this. There is the question of the righteousness. That's what's being addressed here. The question of the righteousness and integrity of God, for it would appear that he has purposed that which he failed to bring to pass. It would appear. Then, too, the reliability of the word of God is not beyond question. For all that the Old Testament promised to the Jew, 
seemingly is being frustrated. Seemingly. To this problem, the apostle devotes himself for the next three chapters. I can't wait to go through this with you guys. I'm, I'm excited, and I think it will help you make sense of so many things uh, throughout history and even what's going, in our, going on in our world today. All right? You excited? Here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. Read through chapters 9, 10, and 11. Just read through it. Make it part of some point in your weekly reading. Just read through it. Don't try to stop and figure everything out. Just read through it, and then show up here on Sunday, and we'll go through it very carefully together, okay? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we, we who have been redeemed by you and, and have been made promises, <laughs> Father, it is so important that we know that you are entirely righteous, entirely. You will never ever fail to fulfill all that your word has said. And so, Father, when we, when we consider the nation of Israel and when, in historically speaking, they had to consider what was going on in light of the fact that the Jews, for the most part, had rejected their Messiah, that, Father, can be confusing if we, if we don't understand what's going on because it appears, it appears it can appear without understanding all that you're doing that your plans have been frustrated, that you purpose to do something with this great nation and now they're, they're nothing. Or worse, that you actually rejected the people that you chose. How, what do we do with that if that is true? Well, we already know that's not true, Father. We, we read it this morning. Have you rejected your people by no means? So then what? Because unbelief continues. Well, Father, we thank you that these chapters have been recorded for us, preserved throughout thousands of years that we might have them today, Father. And I pray that your, your Spirit, the Holy Spirit that indwells us, would illuminate our minds, that would enlighten us in our understanding of Israel and and how they fit into your glorious plan of salvation for all people. Father, help us as we study through these things to just be learners and willing to, to embrace all that chapters 9, 10, and 11 have to teach us and to tell us. Father, we're going to go through some, some very difficult subjects that are sometimes hard to fully get our minds around as we move through, especially chapter 9. So Lord, help us. Help us to just accept whatever your word says. Wrestle with it, certainly, but to accept what it says. And Lord, I know if we do, we will be, we will be blessed by it. Father, we thank you for your word. It's glorious. It's a treasure. And may you continue to to transform us through it, to, to make us more and more like Christ and to make us wise. In Jesus' name, amen.